0: carry Won't you pray for us
1: father i thank you for this morning and father i just thank you for this fellowship and i thank you for seeing us through just 12 years and i thank you for everything that you've done and that you are continuing to do and i thank you um, just for the privilege that we have the freedom that we have of coming together god and i pray that as you lead and direct us this morning in the service, God, that we would be responsive, Father, that our hearts would be good soil, Father, that we would be able to put everything else aside and that the enemy would not get a foothold, Father, that this is your time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: so easily entangles them Lord and pursuing after righteousness God that you would give us a hunger and a thirst even more for righteousness Holy Spirit that you would continue the work in us counseling us teaching us guiding us we are promised in the word that if we walk habitually in the spirit that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh we are called to go forth in a crooked perverse world and walk upright messengers of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ we are called father to go disciple others God teaching them to obey all that you have commanded baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit God, that we are to be fruit bearers in our life, that we're not just to hold a form of religion and deny your power, but we are to walk in the fullness of the power of God. Mm -hmm. Father, we ask today, Lord God, that you would minister to each of us, Father, you know exactly where we're at, what we're facing. I pray, God, that we would not turn a deaf ear. But, God, that we would look intently towards you, Father. And as we open your word, God, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers. That we would walk away from this place today, God, remembering who we are in Christ. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. Kingdom of God is just not a lot of talk, but it's living through the power of God. As so I've been meditating upon that scripture over this past week, And I've been looking at different reports and just hearing different things that are going on throughout the earth. I'm reminded, as I have been for some time now, and I've been reminding you all that it's getting darker. But as it's getting darker, we should be getting brighter. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, you're just a lot of doom and gloom. Where's the hope? Where's the good news? And I told you all, where's the hope and the good news? That the church is still on the earth. We are the bride of Christ. We are to represent him. We are his ambassadors as we're going forth in the enemy's territory. This earth is governed and ruled by the enemy. We wake up each day... Behind enemy lines. And we ought to be thinking with a kingdom mindset. Because if we're here today and we are Christians, then we have been engrafted into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a kingdom that has been established. <laughs> it has no, if you would, beginning point or no end point. It is and it always has has been God's throne, God's kingdom. And the enemy thought that he could rise up above God. But he soon realized he can't. And as you look and you see the ways of our culture, As you look throughout the earth and you see what's going on, the Christian faith is being more and more attacked. What used to be right is now wrong. What used to be wrong is now right. And if you look how Christians are portrayed in the media, Not a good view. <laughs> everything about Jesus, everything about his kingdom, everything about him and his bride is being tarnished by the culture. And so we have to ask ourselves then, as Christians, each and every single day, how are we encouraging ourselves to fan of the flame that's within? To keep our eyes on Jesus and to make a difference in a culture that is against our King, against His kingdom, and against us. We're not to be upset at them. We're not to become religious people who look at them as the scum of the earth. But we're to remain humble and realize we were once them. We know what it's like to be enslaved to darkness. We know what it's like to hold a form of religion and deny his power. We know what it's like. And so now we can testify as believers. We once were, but because of Christ, we are now. There's a testimony within us and among us as the bride of Christ. That the world can't take away from us, that the culture can't strip away from us. And yet we see too people who hold a form of religion be giving platforms now within our culture who's making a mockery of Jesus. And yet and yet they have a huge platform and leading others straight to hell with them. And so we cannot be impressed because people have a huge platform. We have to be able to see fruit in the life of one who is calling themselves a believer. Rather they have a huge platform, or a small platform, or no platform at all. There should be fruit in our lives. We are to be fruitful people for the kingdom of God. Bearing much fruit. Fruit that will last. Not fruit that just sprouts up for a season and then withers and fades away. But lasting fruit. Lasting evidence of being born again of the Spirit of God. Transformed lives. As our minds are being renewed. As we're longing and thirsting and hungering for more righteousness. More of Jesus. Growing and maturing. That we are not just a people with a lot of talk. But that we are a people of great power. And power through Christ and Christ alone. Living this life that it's not pointing towards us. But it's pointing to him. Because that's all we have. Is Jesus. So as we were opening up the Scriptures, and as we're seeking Him through Scriptures, and as we're in the book of Leviticus, a book where God is setting apart His people, God is reminding His people that He is a holy God, that He is a set-apart God, <laughs> that He has established this, this way of 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 worship that this way of forgiveness of sins through the sacrifices that are taking place and we're seeing this gory picture before our eyes so let's go to chapter 6 and 7 of Leviticus but as we're there we're going to read both chapters today yet again we're seeing God lay out these instructions For the requirements of a guilt offering. And so, again, as I've been encouraging us, I will encourage us again that if God takes sin seriously, then we ought to take sin seriously. And we are to see it for what it is it's destruction, it leads to death. This is what the flesh is craving because the flesh only knows how to die. The flesh enjoys sin. It loves its effects on it. And so if we walk by the flesh, if we sow to the flesh, then that's what we will reap. The Bible is very clear. But as Christians, we're called not to sow to the flesh, but to sow in the Spirit, to to walk by in the spirit, to to keep our gaze and our eyes focused on Jesus. That when we sin, (laughs) intentional or unintentional, that when we cause grievance, that when we do something that is not honoring God, I love it when the word of God says what sin is. (laughs) Sin is anything and everything that goes against what God has established. Rather you know about God or you don't, you're still guilty. Because we're all born into this nature that is in complete rebellion towards God. So that's why now, if we're claiming to be Christians, we have an understanding that we've been born again of a new nature that's not living in rebellion towards God, but submitted to His authority. And anything out of His authority that you are participating in Intentional or unintentional is sin. And you deserve punishment, wrath. But Jesus came. And remember, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is a loving God. He's a just God. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. His will is that none shall perish. So he has made a way, a final sacrifice through his son's body. He was nailed to a cross for you and for me. He took the wrath. That we were to endure. That we would be restored back to God through his body. And the good news is, is that he rose from the dead. (laughs) Defeating sin and death. So we are not to partake of the very things in which he has destroyed. He has rendered them useless in our lives. And so we have to know who he is and who we are in order to walk in the fullness of his freedom. And the hope that we have in Jesus to apply truth daily in our lives to walk victoriously. To walk upright in a crooked world. And and we've always talked around here about the scripture in Genesis. Where it says sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to master you. But you must master it. God has called us to live holy as he is holy. And the scripture says he's given us everything we need to live a godly life. The problem is, is that we don't believe that. So we wrestle with all these struggles and and issues that we face daily, instead of focusing our eyes on Jesus and realizing, God, if you've called me to this way of living, then I know that you're faithful to provide what is needed to walk out of bondage and into your marvelous light. Because in and of ourselves, we wouldn't do it. In and of ourselves, we would want to remain rebellious. But in Christ... When we see the fullness of who he is, we long to be in his presence, restored to the Father. Restored to God, you all. Romans 5.1, Now therefore you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Peace with God. And it's nothing that we could ever do to obtain it. So if you're striving so hard in your Christian life to be good, then you don't understand it. You're not not understanding the ways of Christ. You're not to be striving so hard to be good. You're just living out the truth that you know of Jesus. And in living it out, He gives you what is needed he renews your mind he he's giving you that new nature and so you're honoring him these people were going to the tabernacle with all their sacrifices blood is everywhere God if you know from the from the outside you can look at this and say those people are crazy and their god is crazy what God would require all of that and you hear people talk that way even today but the real question is why wouldn't he demand this cuz he's a holy god he's a just god if you see the the purpose behind the sacrifices is for the people to be restored to him. Remember as we are reading reading through four and five, every time they would lay their hand on the animal, it'll be slaughtered. the blood goes everywhere, then they're restored to God. They're restored to God. they're, They're forgiven, they're restored. And it's this picture of being right with God through the sacrifice. And as it is with Jesus, God longs for us to be right with him. So many times we can get caught up on all everything else but him. And we can make our excuses to remain in our sin. We can make our excuses to keep going the way we want to go. We can make our excuses. We can try to water it down. We can try to strip him down. But no matter what we can try to accomplish, it will amount to nothing we will stand guilty before him the only way to be right with god is through christ it's through christ and we can trust in him to know that he completed what he set out to do so as the as people are on the outside of the church as these nations were on the outside Of Israel looking at them. They ought to see God. (laughs) Like we're pointing to God. These people were just in slavery. For 430 years. And now they're with their God. And I love the fact that God is just not allowing them to live however they want.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Oh you all deserve... You know, to to, to to do and be whoever and whatever you decide. Be free. But God will never say to us, Be free in your rebellion towards me. Because freedom does not come through rebellion. F- true freedom comes through Christ surrendering to Him, receiving His free gift of salvation to be born again, we have what is needed to go forth and declare the goodness of God. And as I said earlier, it's harder out there, because just the goodness of God alone looks evil, more and more evil to the ways of this world, to where righteousness and holiness and honoring God, maybe we're once honored, maybe that's not even honored, but Looked upon and said, Oh, they're Christians. What well, they, you know, let them be whoever. <laughs> now, now Christians are looked at as the enemy, yeah. they're being blamed. We're being blamed for everything yeah. because you hold up truth, and they're showing all these, especially over in Europe. I don't know what social media you're following. But over in Europe, there's a lot of old and young pastors, street ministers, who are being arrested. And they've been allowed for centuries to preach on the streets. And now they're rounding them up. And at first you would say, well, if they're told to leave, they should leave. Not knowing that just right around the corner, you've got other Members of different faiths preaching their beliefs, and they're not being arrested. They're not being arrested. And when the police come up to these street ministers and they're arresting them, the ministers are asking, What charge is it? And you hear it. You're preaching hate, you're causing division. This cannot be tolerated anymore and I go oh God (laughs) oh God and so I just want to encourage us we're not we're living in weird times and it's getting weirder and weirder but we are to be bold (laughs) as it's getting darker, you should be getting brighter. Your light shouldn't be fading into the culture. No, your light is to be burning even brighter before family members, before coworkers, before people who are out in your community, or wherever your feet will lead you, that God use you to be the light in the midst of darkness. No matter how they treat you, what they say about you, or what is going to come, that we would stand in the assurance of who our God is. My God, you all. And so as we're reading through these scriptures six and seven today, again, don't look at it as this hard-pressed God trying to you know, demand of them. But look at him as truly who he is, a holy God, a loving God, making yet again provision for his people to be restored to him. Because again, what is his purpose? From Genesis to Revelation, that he will have a people that he will call his own, and in return, they will call him their God. And he leads them. He provides for them. He protects them. He nourishes them. He heals them. He is all in all. He is the great I am. Whatever you need, I am. Learn of me. Know me. Live for me. Live with me. Commune with me. I've made a way. As he did then. So he did through Christ. The final way. The only way to him. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Chapter 6 of Leviticus. Then the Lord said to Moses, suppose one of you sins against your associate and is unfaithful to the Lord. Suppose you cheat In a deal involving a security deposit, or you steal or commit fraud, or you find lost property and lie about it, or you lie while swearing to tell the truth, or you commit any other such sin. If you have sinned in any of these ways, you are guilty. You must give back whatever you stole, or the money you took by extortion or the security deposit or lost property you found, or anything obtained by swearing falsely. You must make restitution by paying the full price plus an additional 20% to the person you have harmed. On the same day, you must present a guilt offering as a guilt offering to the Lord. You must bring to the priest your own ram with no defects or you may buy one of equal value. Through this process, the priests will purify you before the Lord, look at this, making you right with Him, and you will be forgiven of any of these sins you have committed. So we even see from the beginning in verse 1, where the individual is unfaithful to the Lord. And how is he unfaithful? Through the stealing, through the cheating, through the lying. (laughs) And I love this picture of wholeness, of, of, of that individual having to you know, be restored and, and, and for restitution to take place. That God desires wholeness of the individual and the individual that was wronged. But ultimately his desire is for the sinner to be restored to himself. So please don't forget that as we're reading through all of this. It's an incredible picture. And that should be your heart intent when you're sharing the gospel. That yes, people need to see that they are sinners. And I've always shared with you, if you're presenting Christ to people, present Christ before you present his kingdom. The benefits of his kingdom So many times we're out there telling people the benefits of the kingdom without telling them about the king. And so we have a lot of deceived people thinking that they're saved, that they're part of this kingdom. And in reality, they're not. Because they don't know the king. They don't know the king. And that's how the enemy comes in to try to distort truth To lead people astray, to make them believe a false gospel, half-truths, that aren't truths at all. But the point of sharing the good news with people is that they must recognize their need for a Savior. They must recognize that they must humble themselves in repentance and ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that they would be made right with God and will be forgiven of sins. Sins of your past, sins of the present, and sins of the future. Like You're forgiven. That's why as Christians, when you do sin, you don't remain sinning. Because you realize, what am I doing here? I've been forgiven. I'm not to continue to act this way. I'm not going to continue to to desire these things. No, I've been forgiven. Why would I throw away what I have received? Why would I strip it down and make it so common as as if he's nobody? Like when you know you've been forgiven, you've been forgiven. So that if you fall, if you sin, like First John says, I write to you that you will not sin. But if you do, remember. Remember Jesus. Your state of living now is one that has been forgiven. And if you keep that in the forefront of your heart and mind day in and day out, before you go to say something, before you go to touch something, before you go to do you, you'll remember, wait a minute, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. And I don't have to keep returning back to that old man, to the old woman recognizes that they stand in judgment so we want to harden ourselves towards the judgment and just live out of our desires and say no you're not God listen we're all going to stand before him at some point it's best to kneel down now than to kneel then (laughs) like every knee is going to bow and it's best that we do it on this side than on that side. Like we truly recognize him for who he is and say, oh God, like this is what you say about me. Like I am forgiven through you, through the shedding of your blood, through your crucifixion, that I have the victory over sin and death through the power of your resurrection. And that same power is within me that I may choose this day life and not death. Mm -hmm. Life and not death. That I am reconciled. That I'm clothing myself with Christ daily. That I'm secure in his hand. He's not going to let me go. But we can't keep making a mockery of him. Because he is the final sacrifice. It's not like you're waking up today, you sinned last night, and you're dragging Jesus to the cross. Hmm. It's not how the, the mindset that you should be living every day. <laughs> These people, that was their daily living. That was their daily living. They grabbed their offering and they're dragging it to the temple. So much blood being shed. This was daily for them. But Christ, he is not to be crucified over and over and over and over and over and over. over. (laughs) Because he has already been crucified. And now he is resurrected, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's already ascended. He's already poured out the Holy Spirit. So that's how we have to live and believe daily. See him for who he is. You just don't drag him out every day and crucify him over and over. You just don't stomp around in the blood, his blood, treating as if it meant nothing, And it's so common and there's no power in it. No, we must know our God. And we must live in the knowledge of who he is. And then share that knowledge with our words and with our deeds. So the other captives can know that there has been a sacrifice. There has been one who took it. You could live. When have you shared that, you all, this week with others? When have you truly given truth to people? We've got to wake up. We've got to wake up. And even people who are thinking that they're Christians, you know good and well they're not. So You have to desire to share truth. because it's the truth that will set them free it's the truth through repentance and receiving the fullness of this gift of salvation that christ and christ alone offers that makes people right with god this is the love of god all through leviticus Fascinates me. All the different weird commentaries and things out there about Leviticus and how people try to distort God. He's not a mean taskmaster. He's not trying to to strip people away of, of fun, of enjoyment, of life. He is life. He's the author of it. His desire is that we would know him and that we would be his people and we would know him as our God. And then he goes on in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons the following instructions regarding the burnt offering. The burnt offering must be left on the top of the altar until the next morning. And the fire on the altar must be kept burning all night. In the morning after the priest... On duty has put on his official linen clothing and linen undergarments he must clean out the ashes of the burnt offering and put them beside the altar then he must take off these garments change back into his regular clothes and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially I'm, I'm sorry ceremonially clean meanwhile the fire, fire on the altar must be kept burning it must never go out Each morning the priest will add fresh wood to the fire and arrange the burnt offering on it. He will then burn the fat of the peace offerings on it. Remember, the fire must be kept burning on the altar at all times. It must never go out. That's a beautiful picture, you all. These are the instructions regarding the grain offering. Aaron's sons must present this offering to the Lord in front of the altar. The priest on duty will take from the grain offering a handful of choice flour moistened with olive oil together with all the frankincense. He will burn this representative portion on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Aaron and his sons may eat the rest of the flour, but it must be baked without yeast and eaten in a sacred place within the courtyard of the tabernacle. Remember, it must never be prepared with yeast. I have given it to the priests as their share of the special gifts presented to me. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, it is most holy. Any of Aaron's male descendants may eat from the special gifts presented to the Lord. This is their permanent right from generation to generation. Anyone or anything that touches these offerings will become holy. These priests were set apart from as servants in the temple and to serve the people of God and ultimately to serve God. They had daily duties that needed to be done. Christians, we have duties, daily duties that need to be done. There is a way in which we ought to live. There is daily disciplines in our lives that we ought to be growing and maturing in. It may look weird to the outside. People may not understand what on earth and why you're living the way you're living, but that should not change your commitment to Christ and honoring Him. These priests at this time took no shortcuts. They did what God Instructed Don't forget, it's God who's instructing Moses. It's God laying these terms out, how things should be done. And I love this picture too, of the fire not going out on the altar. It is to burn at all times. as it is with us, at the fire of Christ. The light that's within us should always be kept burning. That the fan, that we would fan the flame throughout the day. Listen, we're being bombarded by the culture around us. And it's so easy, it's so easy to get distracted. We're being bombarded constantly. So if you're not preparing yourself daily to stand against the bombardment, dressed as Ephesians 6 tells us in our armor, going through day and day and day, remembering who you are in Christ, Putting things into practice, not just being a hearer of the word, but being a doer of the word. Seeking him. If you're not living like that, you're going to get distracted. And you're going to look back. (laughs) Like I had a hard conversation this week with someone. And said, do you realize when you turned and you went back, you had to look at the cross. And in your heart, though the words may not came out of your mouth, but in your heart you had to choose that this sin that you were returning to, the cross wasn't enough to satisfy you, not to go back. You had to look upon Christ through the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension, through the, through the um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and you have to say in your hearts of hearts, it wasn't enough, God. This will satisfy me. Mm-hmm. Because that hasn't. Every time you turn back to whatever the sin is, if it's gossiping, if it's lying, if it's backbiting, whatever it is. We have to see how destructive it is and how it wants to raise itself up above the knowledge of Christ in your life and all that he's accomplished. And we have to get to a place where we say, no, Like he's made a way out of this temptation. I do not have to go my way. I can choose to go my way. But why would I dismiss him just for a moment of satisfaction? Because after being satisfied for that moment, we all know what happens. Especially as Christians. The guilt and the shame. And the agony of feeling separated from God. And you're going to respond one way or another, repent. Or you're just going to keep getting hardened and hardened and hardened. And you're just going to keep looking at yourself. And you're going to pull further and further away from God. And that fire that should be burning on the altar is fading. Because you're not doing your duties as a priest. You're part of the royal priesthood now as Christians. And if you are lacking and slacking in your duties, the fire on the altar is going to go out. And you're not going to look like a priest. Because everything that was set out for you to do is in ruins. Do you imagine They let that fire go out. Mm -hmm. Do you imagine? If they just were lazy in their work. We're not called to live that way, you all. There's work to be done. We want to see people restored to God. We want to see them forgiven and made right through Christ. That was his heart, that should be our heart. We don't look at him as scum, but we remember that we once were there and we understand the urgency of the hour and the opportunity that we have to share with them, to serve them. He goes on in verse 19, Then the Lord said to Moses, On the day Aaron and his sons are anointed, they must present to the Lord the standard grain offering of two quarts of choice flour, half to be offered in the morning and half to be offered in the evening. It must be carefully mixed with olive oil and cooked on a griddle. Then slice this grain offering and present it as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And each, each generation, the high priest who succeeds Aaron must prepare the same offering. It belongs to the Lord and must be burned up completely. This is a permanent law. All such grain offerings of a priest must be burned up entirely. None of it may be eaten. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons the following instructions regarding the sin offering. The animal given as an offering for sin is, is a most holy offering, and it must be slaughtered in the Lord's presence at the place where the burnt offerings are slaughtered. The priest who offers the sacrifice as a sin offering must eat his portion in a sacred place within the courtyard of the tabernacle. Anyone or anything that touches the sacrificial meal will become holy. If any of the sacrificial blood spatters on a person's clothing, the soiled garment must be washed in a sacred place. If a clay pot is used to boil the sacrificial meat, it must be broken. If a bronze pot is used, it must be scoured and thoroughly rinsed with water. Any male from a priest's family may eat from the offering it is most holy, but the offering for sin may not be eaten, and if its blood was brought into the tabernacle as an offering for purification in the holy place, it must be completely burned with fire and then for chapter 7 we're actually only going to read to verse 27 so chapter 7 further instructions for the guilt offering these are the instructions for the guilt offering it is most holy the animal sacrifice as a guilt offering must be slaughtered at the place where the burnt offerings are slaughtered and its blood must be splattered against all sides of the altar The priest will then offer all its fat on the altar, including the fat of the broad tail, the fat around the internal organs, the two kidneys, and the fat around them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver. These are to be removed with the kidneys, and the priest will burn them on the altar as a special gift presented to the Lord. This is the guilt offering. Any male from a priest's family may eat the meat. It must be eaten in a sacred place, for it is most holy. The same instructions apply to both the guilt offering and the sin offering. Both belong to the priest who uses them to purify someone, making that person right with the Lord. In the case of the burnt offering, the priest may keep the hide of the sacrificial sacrificed animal. Any grain offering that has been baked in an oven, prepared in a pan, or cooked on a griddle belongs to the priest. Who presents it? And other grain offerings, whether made of dry flour or flour moistened with olive oil, are to be shared equally among all the priests, the descendants of Aaron. These are the instructions regarding the different kinds of peace offerings that may be presented to the Lord. If you present your peace offering as an expression of thanksgiving, The the usual animal sacrifice must be accompanied by various kinds of bread made without yeast. Thin cakes mixed with olive oil, wafers spread with oil, and cakes made of choice flour mixed with olive oil. This peace offering of thanksgiving must also be accompanied by loaves of bread made with yeast. One of each kind of bread must be presented as a gift to the Lord. It will then belong to the priest who splatters the blood of the peace offering against the altar. The meat of the peace offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the, same, on the same day it was offered. None of it may be saved for the next morning. If you bring an offering to fulfill a vow or as voluntary offering, the meat must be eaten on the same day the sacrifice is offered. But whatever is left over may be eaten on the second day. Any meat left over until the third day must be completely burned up. If any of the meat from the peace offering is eaten on the third day, the person who presented it will not be accepted by the Lord. You will receive no credit for offering it. By then the meat will be contaminated. If you eat it, you will be punished for your sin. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean may not be eaten. It must be completely burned up. The rest of the meat may be eaten, but only by people who are ceremonially clean. If you are ceremonially unclean and you eat meat from a peace offering that was presented to the Lord, you will be cut off from the community. If you touch anything that is unclean, whether it is human defilement or an unclean animal or any other unclean detestable thing, and then eat meat from a peace offering presented to the Lord, you will be cut off from the community. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. You must never eat fat, whether from cattle, sheep, or goats. The fat of the animal found dead or torn to pieces by wild animals must never be eaten though it may be used for any other purpose. Anyone who eats fat from an animal presented as a special gift to the Lord will be cut off from the community. No matter where you live, you must never consume the blood of any bird or animal. Anyone who consumes blood will be cut off from the community. This is the Lord, you all. It's His way, not our way. And we can't point fingers at Him. And say, oh, you're a bad God for cutting people off. You're a bad God for requiring all of this. People who have that imagery of God, do not they don't know him. He is a loving God. And that's why he's establishing these rules and these laws to point to the need of humanity... Of their need for God. That God, his desires again is that none should perish. That all would be restored to him. But not everybody is going to line up with that understanding. They're going to blame God. They're going to curse God. They're going to keep going their way. Their sinful ways. Living however they want to live. And yet God is calling mankind to himself. I've, I've, I'm making a way even in this even in this time, He's making a way for His people to be with him, to be forgiven, to be made right, to be made whole. And if they go against what has been laid out, then they're cut off. And that's not a mean God. <laughs> That's a just God. And as it is today, those who choose to go their way, those that choose to to live however they want to live, do however they want to do, go however they want to go, God loves you enough to let you go. God loves you enough to say, if you don't want to love me, then go love yourself <laughs> and see what you accomplish in that. Nothing. The ways of God, you all, are right. Not because man says it, but because God, again, he's the author of life. And if you truly want to experience the fullness of life, wouldn't you want to connect with the author? <laughs> wouldn't you want to connect with the one who has instructed it, who has created it. He's God, you all. And He's a good God. He's a good Father. And as we have read through these chapters, hopefully you're getting an understanding because there's a lot of talk going on in our culture about God that is not correct. When you're upholding truth to people, People who have knowledge are dangerous. And if you're trying to uphold truth to people who think they're wise in and of themselves, they are going to lash out. And they're going to begin to say all this weird stuff about God. That's not even true. But they've talked themselves and others into believing these lies about God. Like a lot of times, if you're upholding truth to people today, they want to bring up the Old Testament to you. Well, do you eat bloody meat? You know? Oh, well, do you do this and do you do that? Do you wear garments that are mixed? And they try to bring us all the way back to excuse their selfishness, their rebellion. This is the Old Testament. Everything that is taking place here is to point to the new covenant that's coming through Jesus. The specifics, some of the specifics, some of the rituals that we see, some of the things that God is laying out here is fulfilled in Christ. That's why you're not bringing me a bull today the slaughter because he has he has met the requirements of the law Jesus did but one thing that still remains rather if you're in the old testament or the new testament you can't live for yourself. You can't. So when people want to dredge up all these you know, laws and ceremonial things that God purposed then, the purpose of all of that was to keep a people set apart from the other nations. They were to look different. And as it is in the New Covenant now. Just because Jesus came, He didn't come and do all that He did and then give you the rights back to yourself to say, live however you want. Remember, that's not freedom. He, he, He will never, from the beginning to the end, He will never tell you, be free in your rebellion towards God. Be free in your rebellion towards my holy throne. Just live however you want. You'll never see it. You won't see it. In fact, the people who bring up the Old Testament and constantly want to go back to the Old Testament, oh, the New Testament addresses that. The whole reason why the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament will tell you, you were better off in the Old Testament. It took one or two or three witnesses to convict you. In the New Testament, oh, you don't have to worry about one or two or three people. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything that we see happening to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel, is all part of God's plan and purpose to present the Messiah, Jesus, Jesus, to the world. To the world. And so remember... Don't get confused by people who are puffed up in a lot of knowledge... Or maybe they're just puffed up in just a few Old Testament scriptures... That they're using to justify their rebellion. <laughs> if you are living today... and this generation and in the generations to come... Or as the generations were in the past... If you're living in rebellion to God's throne... Then you will endure being cut off, not because God is a mean God, <laughs> but He just loves you enough to give you what you want. He loves you enough to say, "If you will not choose me freely, then go do you <laughs> and be the best you that you can be." And I've shared with you. I mean, Norma's been the only one in this room. But there's been others that I've counseled. Strangers come up here. I don't know them. But somehow, someway, they hear the ministry, they want to sit down with the pastor and talk. And I always tell them, all I have is the word of God to counsel you. And if that's not what you're seeking, then I'm not sure how else to counsel you. I can counsel you in the ways of the flesh. And I can tell you how to live somewhat right in the flesh. But that is not what motivates me to counsel people. There are so many counselors out there that can help you with that. But as a pastor, as a Christian counselor, I'm counseling you from the truth of God's word. And it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. Because as we learned on Friday night, the word of God is a living word. And it pierces to the core of your existence. It rips out, it cuts you open. And lays you bare. And it hurts. Because no one likes to not live for themselves. Tell me how I can be a Christian and still live however I want. You won't find that anywhere. Old or new. You won't find it anywhere. As it was then, so it is now. If you are going to be in Christ or part of God's family, you have to get rid of that old man. You have to get rid of that old woman. Again, You can choose to go live however you want. You will still be loved. In fact, God loves you. But how sad to know the love of God and not know God.
1: How sad. And that's
0: how people are living out there. And that's why it's getting darker and crazier out there. Because everyone's loving themselves. And more and more and less people are loving God. Because remember, Jesus has warned us that in the days before his return, the love of self, the people are going to become lovers of self. The love of many is going to grow cold. People are going to be so consumed with how they want to live, who they are, what they want to do. Don't tell me there's rules. I'm going to do and be who I am and what I want. Because the enemy is going to work overtime. But the good news is that the church is still on the earth. We have the good news of Jesus Christ to set the captives free. Doesn't matter what your age is. If you are a child of God, you have the responsibility, just like the priests we just read about, to maintain the daily duties of the Lord in your life. To live out before others. Offering them hope to be restored to a loving God. But so many people focus so much on the wrath of God. That they miss out on the love of God. And then you have it the other way. So many people focus on the love of God. That people don't hear about the wrath of God. And we need both, you all, to know our God. He Again, when you read through these chapters, it may seem a lot, it may seem hard, it may seem like I don't understand, but get beyond your lack of understanding and see this beautiful picture of a loving God that says you can be restored to me. Like I love you with an intense love. You see, no one's going to love you like God loves you. There's no one on this earth You may think your mama, your daddy, your best friend, your wife, your husband, whoever loves you, oh, they may love you, but they don't love, love, love you. God loves you. And as I was reflecting on 1 Corinthians this week, love is patient, love is kind. Doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it doesn't hold records of wrong. Like, and, and I've done it, and I read it at weddings, and I've shared it with people, and I encourage people to go. And yes, that, that should be what we're striving for to, to love this way. But the only one who can really, truly love that way is God. And you should see, before you see it for yourself to obtain, you should understand it, that that is how God loves you. And when you see God in this picture of love, nothing can compare to it. There's no sin, there's nothing that any desire that would flare up in you that could compare to the love that God has for you. God is patient and God is kind. He doesn't hold records of wrongs, especially when you're forgiven. Remember what I said earlier? The way that you are to be living as a Christian is with the mindset and the understanding that I have been forgiven. Have you ever been in trouble with your parent? You know, that, that fear almost that you have, maybe you didn't, but I did, when I knew I was in trouble, when I knew I did wrong. And then that anticipation of, oh, I've got to to go, they're going to come home soon, or they're going to find out. And you're like, oh my goodness, you may try to cover it up. You may try to start working out what you're going to say. And then you're punished, whatever that punishment may be. But a loving parent, after one child is punished, they come and they have this beautiful picture of restoration. You're forgiven. That's how it, that's the picture that, that should be displayed, this, this fullness. Sinner, rebellion. All right. Understanding that there's a great wrath coming, but what spares you from the wrath is the grace and the love of Jesus. That you're still held accountable and you still have to endure whatever the effects of maybe whatever that sin or that choice was. But he has you now. You're forgiven. And in that knowledge of your forgiveness, you turn from whatever was back here to turn to do what he has for you. Like I want to live right. I don't want to keep being selfish. I don't want to keep going my way. Like I want to know him more. And it's a beautiful picture of discipline. And that's the best way to look at it. And as we get towards Proverbs, we're going to talk about that. Like we should desire to be disciplined. Discipline brings about growth. Punishment brings about fear. And so that's why we don't talk all the time about God's wrath and not about his love. But then again, on the flip side, that's why we don't always talk about his love and not his wrath. Because there are going to be those who are going to experience such punishment. Because they have refused his love how sad and that's why i always tell you why would you choose his wrath over his love like he is a loving father you all and when you really have the fullness and the knowledge that i am forgiven and like i said earlier when you wake up with that identity and you go out through the day with that identity when things are presented to you because you're being bombarded by by temptations that's why he makes a way out of every temptation because you're like, why would I trade my being forgiven for this? Why would I even look at that when I can look at this and I can see that I made whole, that I have been forgiven by loving God? And nothing can compare to it. Go to Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 30 is what we're reading today. We see our Savior Yet again, (laughs) chapter 3, verse 7 through 30. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, from the east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles has spread far and wide and vast, and numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever they posed by, I'm sorry, and whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. (laughs) Ah, This is Jesus, you all. If you're a Christian, if you have believed, in your heart, you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's been resurrected from the dead. This is the Jesus in whom you believe. He has all authority, all, all power over all creation. Remember what I said earlier. You wake up today behind the enemy lines if you're a Christian. Because this world is still ruled By the evil one. And so you awaken today as a Christian with hope. Not scared of the enemy. Not scared of demons. Not scared of darkness. Because they have to obey Jesus. And you walk in the fullness of who Jesus is. Behind enemy lines. Being a bright light to the darkness around you. Jesus came. And these demons look and they are confessing, you are the son of God. <laughs> and he's sternly warning them, be quiet. <laughs> That's powerful, you all. That's why we've got to stop making Jesus this weird hippie guy. Like he's God, you all. All authority and power is in him. He was healing all of these people. I mean, the crowds were coming from everywhere. But you know how sad that picture is to me? All these people flocking to Jesus? is they were only coming for themselves. He allowed it. He allowed it. He served them. Remember, he came for the sick. He came for the broken. Remember that picture we saw last week with him sitting in the house with a bunch of sinners? He came. He knew his purpose. You should know your purpose. As a Christian, as a believer, you should know your purpose in this world. There is a purpose for your life. You're not an accident. God has prepared good works for you to do even before he placed you in your mother's womb. Before eternity, past everything, he prepared before you wherever a thought to your parents, God thought of you. And he has prepared works for you to do. He desires the broken to come but not to remain broken. You don't come to Jesus for your own selfish reasons. At this time in his ministry, this is what he was doing. He was doing a lot of miracles. He was doing a lot of teaching with divine authority. But there's going to come a time, and we've talked about it before, where his ministry begins to transition from doing all the miracles and all the authoritative teachings, he's going to shift and he's going to take those who are following him and point them to the cross. He's going to shift and he's going to start teaching them the spiritual, practical understanding of who he is and who God is. And it's when that happens in his ministry that people stop flocking. Remember, there's going to come a time, we're going to read it in Scripture, where when he begins to shift it and he begins to teach at a a level of spirituality, that the people go, this is too much. That's why there's people sitting in churches throughout the earth today who are like, oh, this is too much. Ah, come on, pastor, let's rush this up. I want to get back to my life. I want to do me. They, 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 don't, they don't want to hear the spiritual, practical application that you should be living. But Jesus knew his purpose and he wasn't going to let all this hoopla, rather it's the people pressing up against him, rather it's the demons screaming out at him to dissuade him from his purpose. From his purpose. Oh, he could have had a huge ministry. (laughs) But in one day when he started teaching spiritual understandings, all of those people left. Thousands of people walked away from Jesus. Ah, that's too hard for us to understand. What is he saying? Ah, and they went back. And then he only had the 12 around him. And do you remember what he said to the twelve? are you leaving too? He didn't tell them, oh, you're with me. Don't even think about it. He didn't, he didn't yell at them. He didn't, no, he looked at them and said, are you leaving too? And do you remember their reply? Where can we go? You hold the words to eternal life. And oh, how I hope that's your reply. When everyone else is falling away from Jesus, when everyone else has no desire to be in church, when everyone else is just living however they want, oh, that you would not go back, but that you would look to Jesus and say, you hold the words to eternal life. Where else am I going to go? What else am I going to do? And don't forget, one of them was this traitor. So not everyone who stays with Jesus is for Jesus. That's why fruit is very important. Your life is bearing fruit. Afterwards, in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. There were, they were to accompany him, and he would send them out, look at this, to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the twelve he chose. Simon, who he named Peter. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But Jesus nicknamed the sons of Thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot, who later would betray him. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. This is how Jesus' family responded. He's out of his mind, they said. This is Jesus' family, his brothers, his sisters, his mother. They've come to take Jesus, like, listen, woohoo! You've lost it. So I was reading different commentaries on, on what would provoke his family, especially Mary, to think, oh, he's lost his mind. And I finally found one that really, for me, like, oh, that makes sense. Because everyone has thoughts of of what was going on here. But this happened after he chose the 12. And so this commentary was saying that probably what happens, because you have to remember, for the Jews, like Israel, (laughs) like their identity of who they were, was all them it was who they were you don't strip us of our identity we're God's people we're Israel we're Jews you remember how God formed Israel with the 12 tribes the thoughts are is that when the family heard like oh he's chosen 12 men he's making a new Israel he's making a new Israel it provoked in them the desire to go and bring him back and say, wait a minute, what are you doing? Questioning him. Because their identity was being challenged. I said, wow. That's pretty amazing. But Jesus is out of his mind. (laughs) Jesus is out of his mind. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't coming to do away with the old. He was coming to fulfill it. Because remember, God knows that he didn't come just for Israel. God came for the nations. And Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. He came for the Gentiles. He came for everyone. And that's what you have to realize you're up against. There's people on the outside or even people sitting in the church that when you're really walking in the fullness of your identity in Christ, living as he has instructed, it's going to look as if you're out of your mind. It's going to look as if you're rewriting how things are supposed to go. But you must remember If God has called us to it, then he's going to provide everything we need to live it. And yet, though people may think you're crazy, you are of a sound mind, because the Bible says you have the mind of Christ. Verse 22, But the teachers of religious law who had arrived at Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is, more, um, who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his good? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Remember the religious people. These men walked around. They were leading God's people at that time. Full knowledge of God but no relationship with God. And now they're coming in. And now they're saying this man's of the devil. All The while they are. Because they were keeping people from God, oppressing them, giving people the false image of who God was. It's how the enemy works. It's how the enemy works. And that's where you see through scripture where Jesus deals with these, these men and he tells them, Your father, Satan. And you go far to win converts. And you make them twice as much the son of hell as you are. Be careful of religious people. They will drag you away quickly. They don't know truth. They may have knowledge. But it's not applied. They can talk a good talk. But they're not connected to God. Jesus, you all, is exposing the enemy. He's calling people to himself. He's now set apart 12 men to go out to preach and remember what Jesus' message was. Let's not forget, in the midst of all these miracles and everything, do you remember his message? Repent. Repent. Turn from your selfish ways and turn to God. Repent. That was his message. It hasn't changed. No matter what the culture is saying, no matter what people are saying, how repentance and that preaching of repentance is driving people to kill themselves. No matter how people are trying to twist all this stuff in our culture against Christianity and against the message of repentance... There's a lot of churches today that are not even preaching it anymore and how sad because that was Jesus' message and if you're a Christian today guess what your message is to others repent turn from your selfish ways and turn to Jesus go to Psalm chapter 37 we're just reading verse 1 through 11 Psalm 37, the book of Psalms. We had an introduction to it last week. It's the way to do life. Look up. Look up. Know your God. It's the best way to learn. As you're facing difficulties in life, as you're facing different challenges in life, look up. Declare the knowledge that you know of God and, and hold fast to it. Fan the flame within you. Keep it burning on the altar. Don't talk so much about your circumstances. Don't talk so much about that person or this person. Don't make your sin greater than your God. Know your God. and Worship Him. Verse 1 through 11 of Psalm 37. Oh, I love this. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For, grass, for like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Look at this. Trust in the Lord and do good. But then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you your desires, your heart desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and He will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like dawn, and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper. Or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Don't lose your temper. It only leads to harm, for the wicked will be destroyed. But those who trust in the Lord, look at this, will possess the land. Soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. That's good news, you all. That is great news. Especially when we know that the days that we are living and the days to come are only going to get darker, darker. It's gonna look like the wicked is winning. I mean, just turn on your television. Just look around your world. It looks like the wicked is driving out the light. (laughs) But it can't. Darkness can never extinguish light. So we as Christians have to get up every single day. Again, fan the flame and have hope in Jesus. Have hope in our God. The wicked were prospering in this day. The wicked will prosper on this earth. That's why we cannot be swayed by the wealth of people. And look at all they have. (laughs) Because you don't see behind the scenes of the torment they're living in. Carrie and Doreen and I watched a movie last night. This man had everything, gifted and talented, and my goodness, accomplished great things. And his life was so sad, so tormented. And I was even impressed that a secular movie would really display the torment that this man lived through. It was torment. My heart was so grieved to know the life that he lived and the rich love and and, and family traditions that were always exposed to him. And then there's this scene, even when his father at the end goes to embrace him. And I think, God, this man lived and had everything he ever wanted. And yet he died apart from God. He prospered in ways the wicked will prosper you all. But they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God that is forever. So really, what prospering are they prospering to? Only temporalness. That's why we don't live Desiring the temporalness of this life. Yes, it's good. And yes, I love the fact that God will give us the desires of our heart. But lest you think that's for your new house or your new car or the new big career or this or that, those desires in which he gives are desires that line up with his. And the righteous do prosper too in the land. But prosperity, we can't just look at money. But if you want to just look at money, there are some wealthy Christians. (laughs) But their wealth is not used for selfish gain. That's the difference between a wealthy Christian and a wealthy wicked person. (laughs) The wicked people, the unsaved people, will use their wealth for themselves. But the Christian who is wealthy realizes all that's been given to them is to be used now to further advance God's kingdom. Yes, they may have nice homes, they may have nice cars, because they can enjoy the fruit of their labor, just like anyone else can. But the majority of their spending, the majority of what they do, is giving to others. And even the wicked has learned that concept. Listen, remember I told you, just don't go teach people the kingdom principles without giving them the king. Because anyone can put to work a kingdom principle and reap the benefits. Because over here, the wicked give, and give, and do, and do. Because they've learned this is a way too to prosper Mm -hmm. so we can't be swayed by all that (laughs) as Christians commit everything you do to the Lord trust him obey him honor him you all don't be moved or swayed by what the wicked are doing trust in the Lord And finally, in the end, oh, the wicked will disappear soon. But those of the Lord will live in peace and prosperity. In his kingdom, you all. Remember, this earth is not our home. We're looking forward to the day that we are united with Jesus in his kingdom. And hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant enter in. Let's go to Proverbs Proverbs 10 only two verses three and four but before I do that let's do an introduction again to Proverbs Proverbs again these, this introduction is taken from the commentary of Dr. Bright Bill Bright's Discover God Study Bible so what's the purpose of this book? To impart skills for living wisely in a fallen world. Proverbs exists as a testimony to the belief among God's people that success in life comes from fearing the Lord, and that skill in living can be taught and transferred from one generation to the next. The most important concept in the book, I'm sorry, in the book is the Hebrew ideal of skill this term was used in a variety of ways, such as describing the excellence necessary to sew the high priest's garments, to build the tabernacle, to govern a nation, and to live life. The skill of living learned in context of a reverence for God, this is the heart of biblical wisdom. So how are we going to discover God in Proverbs? Wisdom is based on all and respect for God, So God demonstrates perfect wisdom in him. One, by his unfolding plan. The Apostle Paul referred to God as the only wise God in Romans 16 verse 27. The scriptures extol God's wisdom in his work of creation, his providential governing of the universe, and his plan of redemption. The wisdom of God was gloriously displayed in the God-man Jesus Christ. By his questions, his answer, and his parables and sayings, Jesus confounded critics and amazed adherents whenever or wherever he went. God's plan was to display his wisdom in the flesh. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself, First 1 Corinthians 1.30. This explains why an entire book in the Old Testament is devoted to wisdom. It's part of God's plan to prepare us for Christ and enable us to live well in his kingdom. We also will see perfect parenting. Moses made it clear that parents are to impart wisdom and knowledge to their children. And Proverbs continues and builds on that command. The wise child listens to the instructions of parents, while the foolish child rejects their teaching. God, our Heavenly Father, regards His people as His children. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, this is God speaking, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. God desires for His people is that they will become so skilled in reflecting His glory that the world will be drawn to Him through them. Parents who need wisdom can turn to their heavenly parent, the source of true wisdom, God Himself. And then what about us? How can we grow through this book of Proverbs? The first one is true wisdom. The church at Corinth made a mistake that is common among young Christians, equating knowledge with wisdom. Paul wrote, Knowledge makes us feel important, but it is not the same thing as wisdom. True wisdom grows out of fear of God, not infatuation with self or others. True wisdom leads to skills such as humility, fruitful relationships, sound financial practices, and gainful vocations. Therefore, wisdom is practical. It is the expression of knowledge, not the possession of it for its own sake then the role of discipline throughout Proverbs the person who rejects wisdom receives discipline but discipline in this context should not be understood as merely punishment instead it should be equated with training discipline has skillful living as its goal whereas punishment inflicts discomfort as payment for incorrect behavior while discipline can be uncomfortable at times its motive is love and transformation of character. The goal of a parent's discipline should be the same as God's when he disciplines his spiritual children. It's a harvest of righteousness and peace. Then the place of practicality. It has been said that Christians can be so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. While we are indeed called to be heavenly minded, in Philippians 3 verse 20, Proverbs is a book that equips us to live successfully while on our way home. Most of life is lived in the valley, not on a mountaintop. Families, faith, friendships, these are the stuff of life. Day in and day out, the journey to heaven will be more fruitful if we employ wisdom in managing the affairs of our life on this earth. And then finally, Proverbs facts, the author's. King Solomon wrote around 90% of the nearly 900 Proverbs. But there are also collections from other sources, 30 anonymous wise sayings, the saying of Ugar, chapter 30, and the wisdom of Lemuel, chapter 31. Who's it written to? To the families of Israel. The date of writing from the time of Solomon, 9030 B.C., to the time of Hezekiah, 700 B.C., who collected the Proverbs of Solomon in chapters 25 through 29. So then what is the setting? The Proverbs were written in ancient Israel, and many of them bear marks of being written from the royal courts of Solomon. And so the outline, we will see fatherly wisdom, we'll see some Solomon's wisdom, sages' wisdom, more of Solomon's wisdom, Ugar's wisdom, and Lemuel's wisdom. The book of Proverbs. So the two that we're going to read today, three and four of chapter 10. Verse three, the Lord will not let the godly go hungry, but he refuses to satisfy the craving of the wicked. And then the the next one, verse four, lazy people are soon poor, hard workers get rich. These are wise sayings, you all. You need wisdom on how to live out this Christian life in this earth? Go to the book of Proverbs. Meditate upon them. Study them. Apply them. See, as Christians, we're to be hard workers. We're not to be lazy. We're to contribute to society. We're to love others. We're to encourage others. That's why I love it when I see Christians who have platforms serving, loving, and honoring God. We all have a platform, our day in and day out lives, no matter what our age is. People are looking at us. And if they know that you're calling yourself a Christ follower, are they truly seeing it? Because they should. And if they're not, don't beat yourself up. Just come to Jesus. And say, Jesus, I want to live a life that honors you. Teach me. And trust me, he will teach you. The Bible says that if you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him with your whole heart. Remember the word of God says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your body, with all of your strength. To love God you all he loves you this is the relationship we have and it's so simple to receive just believe just make a confession of belief like Jesus I believe that you are the son of God that you were raised from the dead like I believe And then let your belief and your confession begin to transform your life as you are filled with the Spirit of God. You've been born again of a new nature, and now you start living it out. And when you sin, when you fall, remember, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Because I'm already forgiven. So you get up, you repent, and you turn back. Remain whole, you all. Trusting God. Because He is for you. He's not against you. He knows the plans that He has for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in a future. And I love that. Because again, though we may see it growing darker out there, God has still given us the hope to exist in this fallen world. That we can live. And have the assurance of life. And life in abundance. Amen. I'll close this with a song. And then I'll close this in prayer.